Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on, well, I don't really know what it's focused on anymore. For now, we just, we're just playing it by ear and seeing what happens. Sometimes folks reach out to me and want to chat. Other times I decide I should just talk about something and that's pretty much what I'm going to do until someone tells me to stop. And well, you know, I hope you find it interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on a podcasting platform that exists. And if you can't find me on one, just send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and I'll get that taken care of. I also generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. So today is February the 27th, and you know if you got here by the thumbnail, if you got here by the description, by the social media post, we're going to be talking about the black community, its impact on distilling spirits, and and so much, so so much more. Um, I'm going to dispense with any you know kind of uh, wrap up of what I've been doing or where I've been going or things that I've been tasting. If you want to see any of that, you can hop over to Instagram. Uh, or even on TikTok, where I'm doing some sample bottle Sunday stuff and kind of exploring spirits outside of bourbon, uh, trying to stay less myopic in the things that I do, maybe try to um, explore a few new things. But just to kind of kick things off, <clears throat> um, President Ford um, officially recognized Black History Month, which is the month of February back in 1976, um, trying to make an opportunity to seize the... <clears throat> opportunity to honor uh, the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. <clears throat> and today, <clears throat> today, Black History Month is a time to honor the contributions and the legacy of African Americans across U.S. history and society. Um, and I want to caveat all of the things that I'm going to say uh, with, you know, 100% of this content was put together through the optics of what is considered by many, and rightfully so, to be a privileged class in the United States. Uh, so anything that I get wrong or slightly misrepresent is completely open to criticism, and it's not done with any degree of intent or intentionality. Um, in, in preparing for this particular episode, I came across an anthropological article that was published somewhere around 2008 that was talking about a specific incident in the 40s around moonshining in the black community. And while the rest of this particular episode is about how the black community has impacted distilling and spirits um, and hopefully shining a light on some things that you may not already know, this particular article reminded me of something. And I'm not going to have a whole lot of the details of the article in it, but it reminded me of the, the, that the point is the story not a perfect recording of it. Maybe that's me trying to give myself a pass and um, telling of the story that I'm intending to put together. Uh, maybe it's something else. I'm not really sure. But um, in in the the article, the the, the paper, the thesis, uh, whatever it's called, making moonshine: thick histories in the U.S. historically black community. Uh, the author struggles with a perfect recording of a, this particular story. Uh, when the story is related as a part of normal conversation, it's more multidimensional and full. Uh, people recount the story with with color and fervor. But as soon as we start trying to record it, we either, you know, writing it down or 
um, using some type of an audio mechanism to do it, um, people start to clam up. And I think that's an illustration or maybe it's a really, really good analogy or metaphor or whatever you want to call it uh, about what communal spirits do is they loosen up the narrative to get back to that concept of storytelling. Um, not only is storytelling a huge part of the marketing and sales of these spirits, uh, it's a part of the culture it also creates. Or maybe it creates the culture of storytelling. I'm not really sure which way it goes there. But it encourages the storytelling and narratives. Um, and, and, you know, kind of from the beginning, that's kind of what we've been around. You know, what, what, I've, what I've tried to kind of focus around is that the veracity of the story isn't necessarily as important as communicating the emotion of the story. Uh, I work in, in software, uh, computer software, and I was working with a vendor um, last week who supplies a feedback mechanism for software, the ability to capture people's um, thoughts about stuff. And they also provide metrics and analysis. And, and their message was pretty simple that we know exactly what people do by recording it. And we can intuit what they, why they do it with our own understanding of the setting. What we can't know and what we must know is how does it make them feel. And that's the point of storytelling make someone feel something. Um, you know, and if, I think I've kind of bloviated over this. So we'll get back to this central idea that. Um, I hope the rest of this episode makes you feel a certain way. Maybe it's uncomfortable, maybe it's enlightened, maybe it's happy, maybe it's whatever. Uh, I don't really know, but that's sort of the the intent of, of what we've been doing here for a while. I say we like there's someone else. It's just me. It's just me in this room. I say, you know, maybe we as the community of people who've supported this, we as the, the folks who have um, joined me for recordings, whatever, but whenever it comes to this side of the fence, there's just me here. Um, trying to see whatever we've got going on. So um, historical records from the, kind of getting back into the whiskey concept, historical records from the 18th through the 20th centuries in places like Kentucky and Tennessee don't often credit black people for their contributions to the industry. Um, and, you know, that's sort of the case with a whole lot of things. Um, slaveholders, for instance, weren't quick to share praise of any of their enslaved um, people who made up the bulk of the, the people who did the work. Um, and after abolition of slavery, uh, Southern whiskey industry didn't really offer anything else either. Um, but it is absolutely undeniable that, that black people play a huge role in creating America's favorite spirit. Um, and, and one of the things that I think we start, we're starting to, to see a shift in culture um, last summer, you know, there's, there was an episode around this where we talked about it, but I spent some time traveling and um, our family toured um, D.C. We went to Monticello and Mount Vernon, and I distinctly remember touring historic sites as a child that had anything to do with slavery and generically. We would try to whitewash it. Uh, we would try to talk about it really quickly and kind of move past it and talk about how great a particular person was. But we're seeing this change in a lot of these historical societies that are trying to be more accurate to how um, slavery actually was uh, kind of envisioned during that time frame. If we think about George Washington, and you know, we have a whole lot of conversations about um, the whiskey that he was making, even. Um, in, in Mount Vernon itself, um, that was largely made by his slaves, people that he owned, people that had absolutely no choice but to work for him uh, for a lot of different reasons. And, and some of those things that they sort of 
may have integrated into the the culture of, of whiskey making or distilled spirits um, can be something as is straightforward and, and um, important as introducing charred barrels. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty important part, but um, the use of charred barrels can go back to water purification from Africa for a whole host of different things. Um, So there's there's a lot of kind of thumbprint or fingerprint um, within the whiskey industry from enslaved people, and we don't talk about it. Like I said, we we, just, we we sort of talk about it. You've got a couple of brands that are doing, um, you know, pretty strong work in trying to communicate uh, what it was like and you know how how those those folks actually had an impact. Um, but you know, if if you look back at you know, just something as simple as Andrew Jackson. Um, he had, at one point in time, kicked out a significant bounty to have his particular escaped distiller returned to him. And so the, the, there's all of these facts that exist out there um, that are kind of trying to be swept underneath the, the rug, but it's important for us to face those kinds of things. And, you know, it continues today. You know, we could, we, I could probably spend some time tonight talking about um, the situation with Ebony Major uh, and Bullet. And I eventually want to talk about that, but I want to see a little more of the book uh, being written on what occurred there and then sort of how, um, how that situation resolves itself. So we'll, we'll probably pivot to a couple of other things. And most of what we talk about tonight, or some of what we talk about tonight, won't be necessarily about whiskey straightforward. But we're going to start with some, some more recent history, um, which is both encouraging and I think a little bit discouraging at the same time. Um, and so we have, we have, we have a character, um, an individual, a player in the scene of Jackie Summers and Jackie Summers is a, an American distiller. Um, he's, he's done a host, host of other things. Um, but in 2012, he became the first black person in the United States to be granted a license to make liquor pro post prohibition, right? Which is, which is kind of a, a great thing to happen, but the the question becomes 2012 and like that's that's pretty late that's you know just 11 years ago 11 years ago we have the first black person to be granted a license to make liquor in the United States um when we have the foundations of Jack Daniels um being built and a whole host of other companies being built on the backs of 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 slave labor of black labor of african american labor whatever um so Jackie Summers uh is not a whiskey distiller uh, he's he's making small batch sour liqueur um and I'm probably mispronouncing that and so um, you know, if I, if I do get that wrong, like I said, it's, it's, it's not intentional. It's just my own specific, unique ignorance here. Um, but, but sore liquor has a really sorrel, uh, liqueur has a really rich and vibrant history inside the black community specifically. Um, and, and generically it's more of a tea type, um, Beverage. It's flavored with cloves and cassia and nutmeg and ginger. Um, and in Jamaica specifically, uh, they often added rum to it, you know, and, and, and it's seen as, as more of a Jamaican Christmas type beverage. But 
kind of removing the idea of rum. Uh, Niger- in, in Nigeria, they're going to call it Zobo. In, in, in Ghana, they're going to call it Sobolo. Um, and I'm probably slaughtering a lot of these. Uh, in Senegal, Congo, um, Burkina, it's called Bisap. Uh, and, and even in Latin America, there's this Flor de Jamaica or Agua de Jamaica. Um, and, and it was, like I said, it was, it's a tea that's been infused with rum, at least in Jamaican culture, but Summers found some sort of a way to make a shelf-stable version of it. And that's sort of been the problem with the, the liquor, the liqueur, the, the beverage was that it had to always be made fresh. And so, um, something that he had uh, grown up being interested in as a part of his particular heritage, uh, he found his own way to make that a legitimate distilled beverage, and he sought out the the ability to be able to make it. And there's a really long um, story that kind of goes along with it, and I, and I'll let someone else do the telling of that story because it's it's far better than I could ever do. But in the show details, and the show notes, however you come across this, there's an incredible article uh, in Esquire on Jackie's. Um, kind of journey towards bringing this forward but you know this is this is a a black man in america that is interested in distilling and making a beverage that is very culturally um relevant to himself Um, and you know he kind of gets this this mantle of being the first black person to get this ability to be able to to make liquor post prohibition but it only comes in 2012 and so it's um, the story itself evidences this this need to be more opportunity to participate in the process, and you know how how do we get there? Um, there's there's a there's a bunch of different ways. The the, the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling, um, the folks at Uncle Nearest are doing some things, and there's there's a handful of other places for opportunities for people to participate in the process of making alcohol. And so that's very recent history. And we're going to rewind back way farther back. Um, And we're going to talk about Birdie Brown. And so I'm trying to talk about people that maybe people aren't necessarily as aware of. Um, The the folks at at Uncle Nearest have done a great job of telling Nearest Green's story. And there's a handful of other stories that are out there already. I've talked about them before on this particular podcast. But uh, we're going to explore some other ones. And so Birdie Brown, um, her story is very different than a lot of things that you might expect to be able to to to, to discover. Um, she was born free, um, but she lived in Missouri uh, in, in a time immediately after slavery. And, and Missouri had its own... Um, history with slavery, very, very specifically. And she, as a young woman in her 20s, made a trek from Missouri to Montana. And in 1898, um, she settled near Lewiston uh, in Montana. Um, She made a a formal claim uh, for a homestead um, bordering Brickyard Creek, and the claim was made um, in 1907, and she had it proved by 1912. And so, kind of put yourself, you know, in a time machine. You know, re- rewind the clock a little bit, and we're talking about a single black woman in her 20s um, has made a trek from Montana or from Missouri to Montana to try to, to try to homestead in 1898. And so, it's a woman is a black woman owning property. 
um, and building up a homestead in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Which is an incredible story to begin with for a, a black person or a woman, but for a black woman, you know, it's it's different. And, and Montana is, you know, I don't know if you've been to Montana, but Montana is not exactly the easiest region to sort of homestead in. Um, it didn't have some of the, the fertile soils that you would see in Nebraska or Kansas or even Missouri for that part. And... uh Montana was just sort of begging for folks to show up. And there's not a ton that's known. I mean, uh, as is the case with a lot of homesteaders, there's not a ton that are known about people, um, you know, prior to the, them making an acquisition of land. You know, there, there wasn't great record keeping of births and deaths and where they came from. And, you know, marriage licenses are a great way to get at this, but she wasn't a married individual. Um, <clears throat> they believe that she was... Um, abandoned and um, had tried to find a unique way to figure out a way to, to prove her claim, right? Um, keeping animals, planting trees, uh, trying to make some money um, to be able to prove that she was going to make a go of it on this particular claim. And um, one of the things that um, she kind of gained a little bit of credibility around was distilling, selling moonshine, very specifically selling moonshine. And so we're talking a little bit pre-prohibition here, but we're in a homesteading situation in a sparsely populated region, having the ability to be able to um, make moonshine was a really good source of income, being able to help prove her claim out. Now, she continues to distill into prohibition, um, but being where she was, you know, there, there wasn't as much of a threat of um, revenue or showing up, all right? Um, now, eventually... The law is always going, not always, but the law did sort of find her out. And, you know, the, the only way you can keep a secret uh, between two people is if one of them was dead. You know, sort of that, that, that joke that goes back there. And so um, once she was discovered uh, doing what she was doing, Birdie decided to change her profession. She became a dry cleaner. Um, and dry cleaning at that point in time required the use of gasoline as a cleanser. And so having a need to be able to generate your own gasoline to be able to do your dry cleaning tasks um, find, helps you sort of find a way. You know, where there's a will, there's a way, and that's absolutely the kind of um, behavior that, that Birdie specifically exhibited. Now, the, the sad part of this story is obviously that not obviously, but it is going to be that um, working through this distillation ultimately results in an explosion. The explosion leads to the death of Birdie Brown, right? And so um, Birdie Brown's story is now being picked up, right? There's there's a there's a group called the Henderson Spirits Group, and the Henderson Spirits Group is is led by Alan Henderson. He's a retired NBA player. And he's trying to bring forward the narrative of African Americans who have made 
significant contributions in the world of spirits. And, you know, there's a lot of good work that's kind of going into here. And so he's actually um, creating spirits on behalf of the name of Bertie Brown, trying to make this story uh, more widely known and not just her story, but um, the story of Tom Bullock. And Tom Bullock is a uh, what is considered potentially to be one of the world's most influential bartenders in, in the 1910s. Um, he was tending bar in St. Louis um, and, and making signature cocktails. He, he actually did write a book in 1917 called The Ideal Bartender, and it's considered to be, by many, one of the most influential cocktail recipe books of all time. And um, this, is, this is a time whenever uh, a black man couldn't walk into a white bar, white bar, but he was allowed in the bar, but also pe- people came to the bar for him, right? So he, he had a pretty strong culture in the spirits industry. While he wasn't distilling, he was making um, cocktails that were drawing crowds in, in a time when cocktails didn't draw crowds like they do now. It's, it's a, a different sort of creature that existed. And so um, Alan Henderson and, and his company are also pushing into um, making some spirits on the, on the behalf of the, the, the Tom Bullock name as well. And so, you know, the, there's 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 links in the the show notes here around uh, Bertie Brown's um, alcohol. We'll get some in there for Tom Bullock as well, uh, and around Alan Henderson and the spirits group that he's running. Because I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting things that sort of come out of that. Um, these are all things that that you likely haven't heard of yet, but I'm really optimistic that you will very soon. Um, so then pivoting and and. We're, we're going to talk about um, something slightly more recent. We're still staying in history. We're still trying to, to honor and you know sort of cherish some things that have happened historically. Um, but we have Elmer Lucille Allen. Uh, this is the last uh, individual that we're going to talk about. Um, and you know it, it's, it's sort of funny that um, we have two black women to talk about. And their time frames are absolutely in time frames that do not make sense um, in American culture for them to be as impactful and influential as they are. So, Elmer Lucille Allen was the first professional African American that was hired by Brown Foreman. She was hired in 1966, um, and she stayed there for 31 years. Uh, and retired in 1997. She was hired on as a chemist, very, very specifically as a chemist. Um, now, El- Elmer was born in 1931, um, and she grew up during segregation in Louisville specifically. Um, she she wasn't a stranger to hard work. Um, you know, she worked in a library um, while she was in high school to help pay for bills and whatnot. She graduated high school with honors, um, but she had a severe stuttering problem, and so she got a little bit of help from one of her high school teachers um, to try to learn to be able to speak uh, free from stuttering, and she ultimately was able to deliver um, a speech that won her an award after the fact. So um, thinking back in this time frame, there weren't really grants or scholarships that were available in 1949. And so if you were going to go to quit to, to college, um, which 
was not a foregone conclusion for anyone at that point in time. I mean, in 1949, who was going to college? There weren't a ton of people that were doing that, um, and the ones that were were doing it on their own. Um, and so she she paid. She went to college at St. Augustine. Or sorry, she she went to work. She paid her tuition by working at the college, um, babysitting, house cleaning, um, and she attended the Louisville Municipal College and the University of Louisville College for African American students. Um, there are courses in English, mathematics, science, social studies, you know, a whole host of other things. And the school that she was attending was closed because the day law was rescinded. And so the day law um, was an act that prohibited white and colored persons from attending school together. Um, it was signed into law in 1904, and it was rescinded in 1951. Um, and, and the first school to accept African-American students after that was Nazareth College. Um, when the the school that she was going to the the um, Louisville 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 uh, Municipal College closed, she transitioned over to Nazareth. Um, she had to take some classes in religion and philosophy, science, math, psychology, English, speech, a whole host of other things that that sort of exist there. Um, Nazareth was able to graduate its first two African-American students in 1951. Um, there's, there's a scholarship that kind of lives there. So a couple of years later, um, Elmer graduates from college as well. And, you know, she was kind of on the, it would have been a very easy path for her to, to go to college for um, office work, for typist, for things that would be traditionally considered to be, um, women's work, or even black women's work, for that matter. Um, but she actually went for a Bachelor of Science in General Education with a major in Chemistry and a minor in Mathematics, which sounds incredibly difficult for anyone. And there were um, two students who graduated with a degree in Chemistry at the same time that she did. And because of the the situation around employing women and employing black people and employing black women, she couldn't find a job as a chemist. Um, and so she actually went out and took a civil service exam and her first job post college was just a clerk typist, um, in Indiana. Um, and she was there for a few months before she transitioned into something that was closer to her work, um, at the Indianapolis general hospital. Um, she went on to work for the Methodist hospital and, and a community hospital, and she got into helping set up labs at the hospital and, in 1958, she returned back to Louisville, uh, working as a med tech at the Children's Hospital and a research chemist at the American Synthetic Rubber Company, uh, and then a chemist um, at the UofL Medical and Dental Research. One of the other chemists' uncles was in charge of Brown Foreman's Research and Development part. Uh, department and this other chemist which was a female as well um, gets Elmer an application right which seems sort of like a long shot we're talking about you know 1966 but she applied uh, interviewed and started work in 1966 she begins work at Brown Foreman um, at a time when there were very few women in the workplace and those that were there were in secretarial roles uh, she joined a team of three other women 
worked on the worked in the research and development labs on the first floor of the, of the production building. Um, Elmer analyzed whiskey and their raw materials, corn, rye, malt. Um, and, and the folks that she worked with, no one did the same job. Everybody was sort of specialized in the work that they did. Um, and she, she kind of comments on, you know, seeing women working and in, in elevating into executive roles. It was sort of encouraging, you know, seeing that, that people are able to kind of move up. And so, um, she continues her work until 1997, right? And so she works at, um, Brown Foreman for 30 years. 30 years, you know, starting in 1966, we have this this woman who has been Im- impacting whiskey for longer than a lot of folks ever have um, as a black woman hiring in in 1966 in, in, in Brown Foreman. Um, you know, and, and retirement doesn't stop her. You know, this is 1997 when she retired. And so I think about that, you know, I was not even graduating high school yet. And since then, um, she's gone back and gotten a degree, um, a master's degree in art, and she's got a pretty strong name for herself in ceramics, um, and and just kind of keeps going, right? And it has has sort of that mentality that exists of what we sort of expect and hope for out of um, the United States, out of out of citizens, you know, kind of the the American dream, the American exceptionalism, that that whole thing. Um, but it, it, it's all, it's all the exception, not necessarily the, the rule. And that was kind of the, the hope and the intent of, of today or tonight's episode was to be able to talk through some places where, um, the African American community has had an impact on distilling that we still don't largely know about. And so it gave me an opportunity to selfishly spend a few hours doing some research and dig up some names that I'd never heard before and understand some new stories and hopefully kind of communicate those things back out to everyone else and say, hey, you know, there's 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 a very rich and vibrant history that exists out there and we need to continue exploring it. We need to continue um, building out these stories, weaving this wonderful tapestry that is whiskey, but being more inclusive and, and making sure that we understand that the foundations of it are very multicultural and that the future of it should be as well, right? And so we, we need to see more distinct diversity. And, and I think one of, the, one of the most discouraging things is if we think about at, at a time when um, bourbon and whiskey was looking for a consumer um, they didn't consider a whole section of of a cross section of the United States of its citizenry. Um, you know, they were they were trying to chase down old white men, and and you have other distilled spirits out there like uh, cognac that actually targeted specifically the black community and found huge success there. Right? It, it's not just a, an old white man's spirit anymore. And it doesn't need to be. And so, you know, the, the hope is to kind of you know tell these stories communicate them to anyone that's willing to listen and, and hopefully expand um, the, the the palette of available people that are going to be a part of our culture kind of going forward. And so 
we're going to leave it there. Um, I've got a couple of interviews coming up, so um, we'll get back to a few of those. Uh, next month is is March, which would be a great time to, to focus on, on women, but uh, we're actually going to probably spend some time on Irish whiskey because it's also when St. Patrick's Day is. Um, but I do have a couple, like I said, I've got a couple of interviews, um, something else to kind of kick out there and, 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 and roll through and you know, kind of see what happens. Um, so thanks for anyone who happened to tune in for this particular offering from the podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you have to be consuming this on. Make sure you let me know if you can still hear this. I mean, this is a weird thing to say, but if if you've been a traditional audio podcast listener and you, you've hopped over to YouTube, um, I made some changes to who's doing the hosting for my podcast just to uh, make life a little simpler for me as I'm trying to simplify this particular um pet project that I've got going on and so I think it's still out there I think people are still having you know a success opening it up and listening to it but you never really know um, so if you do um, happen to be on a podcast platform leave a comment um, like it leave a review do this you know all the things everybody if you're listening to this podcast you listen to other podcasts already they've already told you what to do just do the same thing for me that you do for them if you can um, you can hit me up on social media on Twitter or Instagram using embellish pod uh, you can give me a follow and see what's going on there there are other things that are happening there I found it's you know, a little bit easier to kind of push a few things out there um, I do have a website sort of it is www.embellishpod.com it's got my links there's just some uh, contact details account information whatnot um, I'll be back again pretty soon with another new offering for you so until then cheers and thanks for hanging out <laughs>